Hello and welcome to Nightlight. There are many things in church life that don't make a lot of sense to me. Some of them don't make sense because I truly think they are <laughs> senseless. But we won't look at any of those right now. There are some, though, that may seem to not make sense, but they do make sense. And we're going to look at those in this next hour, or at least one of those. Maybe I'm the only one who ever wonders this, but I bet I'm not. I want to ask this question. Why do we try to get a lot of people to pray about things with us? Now, just let that question, as I stated it, sit for a minute on your mind. You may think of big things or big bad things, and you may think, well, dummy, we need a lot of people to pray about big or bad or most of all, big, bad things, because they are big and bad. And the more people who pray, the more of a possibility we have of seeing the big, bad things turn around or get stopped or at least turned into something else other than what they are. But is that true? I mean, does God respond to popular demand is he moved by numbers? Like, okay, uh, the majority speaks, so God has to respond. Does he change his mind about how he's going to intervene or not intervene because enough people get involved and begin to talk to him about it? And if that's true, then how many people is enough? If the problem is just private to you or yours, then would it guarantee God's action for you if you just got a few extra local people to pray for you? But if it is a national emergency that requires, what, an international prayer movement to save a nation? How does all that work? Now, thankfully, God is not a politician, so majority opinion has absolutely nothing to do with it. He's not apt to be easily persuaded by popular opinion. We all know that down deep at the base of our belief systems, you know, we, we, we know that. It's an insult to your intelligence for me to say it. And yet, even though we know it, we still come across with a statement like, we got to get enough people praying. Uh, so we can change God and then God will change things. I know all about that because I, I just this week sent out a, a, an emergency prayer request to a group of people asking them to, quote, help me pray about a situation that to me seemed very huge, very potentially dangerous on a certain level, and I felt I needed their help. So I'm not making fun of anyone or I'm not being snide when I asked my original question, why do we try to get people to pray with us or to help us pray? Or why do we try to get a lot of people praying on a given situation? Again, I'm not being disrespectful. But I have to ask, do we think through these practices and understand them 
Or are they just habits we have picked up from others who picked them up from others who picked them up? You, you get the idea. Please get people praying. Call the prayer chain. Well, I wonder how many do pray. And I also wonder if people who are drafting numbers of prayer partners for some emergency issue, do they pray themselves? Or are they just gathering lots of people to pray in hopes that at least a few of the ones they ask will actually pray? And that maybe they will be the ones whose prayers really work. And what exactly do we mean when we think about prayers that work, quote-unquote. We're not talking about mechanical gizmos, and we're certainly not talking about magic spells. So in what way does prayer, quote, work? Now, I have a good reason for stirring up these questions. It's because for any of us who may have had any time to think about these things, It's a hindrance to the effectiveness of our prayer life if we carry around ideas inside of us without understanding them, at least trying to understand them as much as we can. For those of you who have never had any of these questions or who have never even struggled with any of these questions, I congratulate you and I ask for your prayers. But for the rest of us who have had them or who do have them still, let me say that there are answers to these questions and thinking through them will not only set us free from the nagging thoughts that can hinder prayer, but dealing with them and putting them aside can open a great new vista that will increase our desire to pray. And that's a good thing. It's also becoming more and more necessary. Now, why do I say that? Well, because I truly believe that our prayers have a direct and ongoing and increasingly powerful effect on the direction life takes. I don't think everything is set in cement. That statement is a no-brainer for any believer, but even, even though we all claim to believe that, we can only measure how seriously we take it by how, how much we pray. If we say we believe that and don't engage in active prayer, then we simply don't believe it, do we? And also, if we say we believe it is vital for us to pray, not only about personal things and people in our lives, but we don't pray, uh, and then if we add to that, we don't pray for national and international things, then that becomes a bigger problem. We're called to pray for both. The question I want to put in front of us and make center in this time together is, why do we need to pray? And why do we need to get others to pray with or for us about either big things that seem to be coming or about difficulties that we personally are facing? Uh, I see it on people's faces, and I can feel it in conversations. Let someone say, I really need your prayers. And we all probably are guilty of this at some level. We, of course, all say, yes, of course, I'll pray. 
And more and more, as people truly mature in love and wisdom, we mean it when we say that. We will pray. But unless a person has truly thought through and wrestled with these questions, they will dutifully pray what I tend to call a now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayer. They will pray a short, uninvested prayer that only serves to fulfill their promise to pray so they won't feel guilty that they said they would pray and didn't. I prayed. I spoke their name to God in reference to this issue that they brought to my attention. Now, before I say another word, I want to make it clear again, I am not trying to be critical and I'm not denying some good always comes from even what I might call elementary prayer responses. I'm not being critical of that. Anytime a person speaks to God in loving response to another person's request for us to speak to God on their behalf, there is something good released in that action as well as there's something good in the motives that cause people to pray. So I'm not sitting here taking condescending pot shots at anybody who cares enough to be sure that they are fulfilling their promise to pray for their friend who asked them to. So if we can get past the criticism and fear of criticism and begin to think this through, I believe the Holy Spirit will help us come to some needed conclusions about the dynamics of prayer that will then help us both individually and corporately pray on a greater level of reality. When we hear the increasingly common public mockery of prayer that's coming from people in our culture who hate God, who love evil, and therefore enjoy any opportunity to scorn faith, that should that should really just roll off of us. Or if we hear more honest criticisms from people who don't necessarily hate God, but they don't love him either, and they don't know him, and they don't understand what we mean when we talk about praying, especially in the face of tragedies. Um, that shouldn't roll off of us as much as it should awaken in us a desire to help them understand without sounding self-righteous or preachy. We should never expect people to understand prayer. The only thing they seem to understand about it is that when their own world hits some potentially agonizing conflict, and then then there, there's a change of heart, and, and they may become possibly open to prayer. And we need to be sensitive and respectful to that. But now and then I encounter believers who tend to be a bit shaken by what they consider, quote, understandable criticisms about praying and they they really reflect more their own struggles than the strugglers of unbelie- the struggles of unbelievers and uh, this is on the rise you'll you'll hear it increasingly what good does it do to pray who cares about your asking god to be with grieving families after all where was god when it happened well That seemingly understandable question is actually not so understandable in certain situations like public school shootings. Here's exactly where he has been. He has been asked to not be there. He has been asked out of the public schools 
out of the situation. So there are praying, believing people within those schools who are praying, you bet. Well, what about them? Are they not enough to bring about God's intervention? Are there other situations where he was not asked to be out of the situation, like the suffering church around the world, or in our family life, or our private inner struggles? We're not asking God out. They're not asking God out. But sometimes tragedy still happens where there are praying people. Does it do any good to pray in those situations? Well, after 50 years of doing it, I can say going into many struggles, it appears he was not there. And coming through those struggles and seeing their aftermath, I can see clearly where he was there and where he acted to rescue and heal and restore. Are there exceptions to that good news? Well, only if you have a this present world point of view. For people who live in prayer and who trust God to bless and watch over all that they love, God does not play a nine-inning game. He doesn't even stop playing when the in-game buzzer sounds. He doesn't even play only within the confines of the playing field. He plays outside time, outside the field limits. God plays till God wins. So we may not see that or the outcome of the thing we've trusted for until our own time is over on the earth. Prayers for my children and my grandchildren will haunt their future and mold their lives in ways I may not be able to perceive. Prayers for people in my past, especially those who I've injured and sinned against, who I no longer have access to in the natural flow of life, are being helped and healed and blessed as I lift them before the Lord. I know that's true. In this way, what the devil meant for evil through me, God turned for great good through me. I am serving out a sentence of love because I failed to love before. So now I can happily do my time, so to speak, for that failure by serving in the sentence of prayer for them. So now I can happily do time uh, in in what seems to other people to be uh, a punishment. To me, it's a great joy because we live in a place outside the confines of time space. We can entrust to him all that we love, all that we grieve over, all that we don't understand, and say what Paul said in Second Timothy one twelve. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. Let me back up a minute. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 says there are many kinds of prayer. The purpose of this hour together is not to examine all those kinds of prayer, which we couldn't do in 10 hours, but it is to awaken this one truth about prayer, and that is this, that no matter what form that prayer may take, whichever one you're engaged in, prayer in any form is an interaction that takes place between you and the creator and sustainer 
of everything. When we understand that it is not possible for our prayers to be small, insignificant, ignored, or ineffective, they will not be small, insufficient, ignored, and ineffective. They don't have to be eloquent. They certainly don't have to be religiously formal, just real. Now, yes, they may come from a formally written liturgy or from the very scriptures themselves, which is a great way to pray when you don't know how to pray. Or they may burst from your mouth in the raw vernacular of your personality. But knowing that the Creator has repeatedly not only invited, but seeks earnestly for you and me to interact with him in every kind of communication we tend to lump up under the word prayer, that truth alone can both change our prayer life and increase its level of power. There are, as usual, many words that relate to the meaning of prayer in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and they are all interesting, but I don't want to do a multi-word study right now on the, the word prayer. Let me just mention one. Tifala has to do with the idea of being connected, and it also has to do with rungs of a ladder. You see the idea. The right connections of the ladder make it possible for you to connect and rise up to a higher level. At the basis of all this is the simple idea of making a connection and then of remaining connected. So let's just keep it simple. The only way we can be in relationship is to make and protect the connection of the relationship. The core of our connection to the one we are wanting to relate to is to relate to him. And relate means communicate. Simple. Talk. Yes, talk. So that is elementary, but vital. But that is an aside with regard to what I'm hoping to take us into in the time we've got left. I want to move beyond the necessary foundation and look at our original question of why we ask lots of people to pray about great needs. A positive understanding may begin with a negative one. Here's the negative one. It's a common experience. Have you ever started to pray and felt an almost physical resistance to praying? I've noticed over the years that there's a strange resistance to my prayers that feeling that comes over me that may say I'm not worthy or that I'm only taking time to talk to an empty room or that I should be doing anything else other than praying, that illogical sudden increase in pressure to get me not to pray, that flood of sudden thoughts telling me, of all the things I need to be doing right now that wasn't at all even on my mind until I begin to move toward undivided, focused prayer. That resistance, and it is the same resistance no matter which form it takes, that resistance is a great indication that I must be disturbing something very much 
when I pray and that some evil intelligence does not want me to pray. Over the years, that negative pressure that comes on me has increased my prayer life a great deal. So a negative produced a positive. The moment I sense anything passing through my mind that suggests that I don't need to stop now to pray, I can pray later, or that I need to finish this or that first, or I need to study my Bible. That's a good one. I need to study your Bible. Don't pray. You need to study. Or, well, I can't pray. I've just been acting like a jerk. That's, that's a common one. I've, I've learned these are all signals that scream that it is now, at this moment, that I need to speak out my mouth in prayer. You're being dangerously effective against something hateful when you feel pressure to stop you from praying. Now, this has to do with what we just mentioned from Ephesians 6.18 about there being different kinds of prayer. I said I wasn't going to examine all those kinds of prayer, and, and I'm not. But we do need to understand this one point about kinds of prayer. I talk to the Lord all the time. I live with him. I love him. I know he loves me. As A.W. Tozer said so well, quote, God is easy to get along with, and he is. He said he would come and make his home with me, John 14, 21 through 23, and he does. I practice his presence in the daily flow of life, and sometimes, depending on what is taking up my attention, I may forget about him to some degree, but increasingly, I do not ever forget him. He's on my mind even when he's not on my mind. And that is, I think, the very normal way to live with him. But there are certain occasions, again, depending on the circumstances, when I am aware of some event or some pressure or activity in the Spirit that takes me beyond this day-by-day living with the Lord and requires that I take a more focused stance in what I may call prayer. Because see, I don't really call living with him and interacting with him and talking to him all the time. I don't really call that prayer. Because prayer, again, I don't want to get into definitions, but prayer brings to our minds really an idea of making a request or begging a response. Or The word supplication comes to mind, and I'm not diminishing or belittling that. But when I speak of prayer, I don't think of that in the same category as practicing the presence and interacting with Jesus every day about everything. First Thessalonians 5.17, famous verse. Everybody loves this verse because it's short and they can memorize it. Pray without ceasing. And there's all kind of conversations you hear from people about what it means. I love the Passion Translation. It says, make your whole life a prayer. That's how the Passion translates, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Make your whole life a prayer. So, yeah, okay, there's the practice of the presence where you make your whole life a prayer. Then in the midst of such constant living in prayer, the Holy Spirit may move on us to act in a specific, focused kind of prayer. 
for a specific purpose. And that's part of those different kinds of prayers Ephesians 6.18 talks about. And you remember Ephesians 6.18 is in the context of Ephesians 6.10 through uh, 17, which talks about the, putting on the whole armor of God and battling principalities and powers and world rulers of this present darkness. And so it's in these kinds of different prayers that we can find some answers to our opening questions or my opening questions, which I'm Im- imposing on you. Why do we ask for help in prayer for certain issues? Because whether we know or understand it or not, deep inside we must instinctively understand there is some kind of warfare going on. That God has not left it to chance or to fate or even, I say this reverently, even to his sovereign rule as to how this or that situation may turn out. He has woven creation together and especially his family of believers he has woven together and he has woven our human bonds of affection and love together with our family members, with our friends, with our loved ones, or with non-believers that we've come to know and love. And that should happen more and more, by the way, coming to know and love unbelievers. So they get pulled into this matrix, this web of prayer. But God has woven us together on the human horizontal plane in such a way that everything, no matter how unseen it is, to our limited understanding, is in some kind of powerful tug-of-war. God does not sit indifferently above it, amused by our pain and struggle, or arbitrarily deciding whether to bless or to injure, as if God is ever the source of injury, which he's not. He's never watching it and trying to decide, depending on his mood, what he's going to do, because God doesn't have moods. No, he is actively, constantly, and I believe, if I may use this term, longingly, searching for those who will take seriously his invitation to participate with him and to become his human representatives, participants, partners, blood-bonded family Participants. I'm trying to find a word that goes beyond participation, like being members of a glee club. Uh, it's 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 being in the family. It's being caught up in the life of the Trinity. In whatever earthly struggle we're taking place, we are primarily in that dance with the Trinity, and that whatever spiritual evil forces are at work to hinder God's good purpose is somehow itself being hindered or even overthrown depending on how much and how seriously we take our place in the special call to this special kind of prayer. I don't want to wear you out with too much detail, but we need to try to get this. The picture we tend to have in our childish imagination is that we're here on earth Here the devil is messing around with us and what we care about. Way up above is God. We cry up to God to come down and do something about the devil. 
We get a lot of other people to pray for us too. We hope this will get God's attention even more so God will intervene on our side. That's not right at all. We need a, a biblical battlefield imagery in our imagination. The scriptures tell us that we are literally seated with Christ in a place, tapas, a real place, in the spirit realm where we are united with him as co-rulers. Revelation 1.5 refers to us as a kingdom of priests or kings and priests. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 says we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's not poetic language. Romans 5.17 says we rule in life now by Christ Jesus. These are not hyperbolic religious euphemisms. We take our rightful place in cooperating with the Holy Spirit, in speaking into the earth what we hear him tell us through scriptures as well as what we hear moving through the Spirit in our own hearts. And we are so one with him that much, I admit certainly not all, because sometimes my old childish misunderstandings can mix in, but increasingly we are so one with him that much of what comes out of us in prayer is exactly in line with his own heart also, because he's the vine and we are the branches and his life flows through us, including our prayers. I in you and you in me. John chapter 14, verse 20. John seventeen twenty three says, In that day you will know that I am one with the Father and you are one with me. And then he says to the Father, Father, you, will, you fully live in me and I live fully in them. And so they experience perfect unity. Sometimes our prayers are requests, obviously. Sometimes they are actual commands. We are obviously not commanding God. Some people misunderstand the verse in Isaiah that the, the text escapes me at the present moment, but I've, I've heard certain, certain preachers actually say, the book of Isaiah says, command me concerning the works of my hands. And you, you don't ever command God concerning the works of his hands. It's utter foolishness. The context of that verse is a question. Do you dare to command me concerning the works of my hands? That's the context. It's, one day we need to do a whole study just on goofy, silly Christian superstitions that are based on scriptures that have been taken out of context. But that's for another day. We, we command sometimes in prayer we are not commanding God, but we are speaking a, a command that is coming from our union with God and declared to some enemy or some evil circumstance that God wants stopped and he wants us to do it. Like Moses with his staff in his hand and he says, look God, you see the sea, you see the Egyptians, you see the predicament and God says, what is that in your hand, Moses? What's that in your hand? I love that question. Except when it's asked to me. I'm not sure I love it. But God will not simply sovereignly step in and stop 
the situation. He is training us. And prayer, union with him, moving with him is that training. Now, it's difficult for us to get this at first. Because it is so opposite of tradition. It is so opposite of the way tradition and I'm speaking of bad tradition. There are good traditions. This is not one of them that teaches that all prayer is supplication and that all prayer needs to be approached in the spirit of uh, a beggar coming with his hat in his hand uh, asking for crumbs. Um, no. There's, there's different kinds of prayer, different levels of prayer, different rungs of the ladder of prayer that brings you into deeper and closer intimacy it's messy to learn this. It's sloppy. It's often a bit mysterious and sometimes somewhat confusing. Like all training, it will not be clear or easy. It will not, and we won't get it right at first, except occasionally. But we will learn and we will grow and we will increase in the ability to discern. And we will become eventually persons who are very attuned to his heart and who move into prayer according to his will without having to work hard to find it. He then moves through our prayers in a way we cannot readily discern. But we don't need to know the details. We are obeying him in adult authority as sons and daughters with mature thinking. And, and at the same time can therefore trust like a small child to leave the details in his hands, whether we understand them or not. If it does not go the way our natural minds and inclinations desired, we leave that with him. But we are conduits of his power on the earthly level and we bring the heavenly level down through our earthly level prayers as we are seated with him in the heavenlies while our bodies on the earth. And into these conflicts we trust with childlike rest and mature adult warfare prayers. When I say we are conduits, that is not some mere symbolic or poetic language. He does actually live in us, move through us, and unite us to each other. He can move through our private single prayer, of course. But when there is a network of others also praying, it widens and increases his available network through which to move. Could he sovereignly move by sheer command and not need such a network? Of course, but he has not chosen to do it that way for the reasons we've been laying out. You and I are in training. Now, I don't pretend to be able to answer every possible contingency that may come to mind about why increased corporate prayer brings greater power of God to bear upon a given situation or why it has at times seemed not to have made a difference. I don't believe it is ever wasted or ever ineffective. But I hope you can see the basic principle and then maybe we can learn more of how it works in various other examples. But one that comes to my mind now is praying for, for the nation, for instance. The recent terrible events in Northern California, which is still causing havoc. 
uh, is an example. A person caught in a firestorm praying for supernatural rescue will be heard. If they live or die, they live. But they may have been taken out of the earth before their time is due because of the chaos of evil set in motion by a corporate lack of obedient, watchful response to a rising unmet situation. But many people praying for peace and righteousness to be flourishing in a given area can possibly see a total transformation in circumstances which makes the avoidance of the firestorm altogether so there will be no need for a private personal prayer for rescue out of the firestorm. I believe we are more and more entering a time when this idea is going to become vital for us all to understand. The seemingly increased prayer power that comes from a group praying focused on the same issue is not to get something to change in heaven. It is heaven that is moving to change things on earth. The more people who are bound to that work of the Spirit, the more effect is being released through them in a network of human relationships that we don't have the capacity to monitor. But we do see it this in Scripture. How good and how blessed is, is it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like the anointing oil that comes down from the head through the beard of Aaron and covers the whole body. For there the Lord commands the blessing. I believe the reference here to the high priest and the anointing oil flowing down from his head through his beard is, is not just a, a, a poetic pretty picture. A priest is a bridge builder. This is the root meaning of the word. The priest touches heaven for earth in intercession and touches earth for heaven with blessing. This reference to corporate unity and love being a place where the, it's like the anointing that pours down the head of the priest is a perfect picture of what happens when more than one of us moves into a place of true love and real care that manifests in intercession for other people or situations. The anointing pours through it and brings life. Here the Lord commands the blessing. We must believe that regardless of how much of that life we may get to witness on the earthly level. I know it's insulting to our adult human fleshly egotistical minds when we cannot see and measure what is happening. But to a childlike obedient person who simply believes that when he speaks to God on behalf of a situation or person that God is involved, it is only natural for that person to ask others to link together with him or her in order to increase the prayer power on the earthly level. For it is on the earthly horizontal plane that we are responsible. The angels and archangels take care of what's happening in the realm of principalities and powers. Heavens do not, the he, heaven does not need to be either informed or motivated in order to bring good where there has been evil. Jesus explained that entire question with one sentence. 
thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then he said in Matthew 18, whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. I said, we're not trying to change, you know, you hear people talk about moving heaven. We don't need to move heaven. Heaven needs to move us. Heaven already knows exactly what it's about and what it's after. It's not us trying to talk heaven into anything. It's uh, heaven trying to find a place to come down through us if we'll make ourselves available. So let me just mention here, by the way, for any of you who may naturally have a question about it, verse, uh, there's a verse in Matthew 18, verse 20, that refers to where two or three gather together in agreement as, quote, touching anything they ask. It will be done for them. Now, this is clearly not some magical idea that if you can just get one or two other people to agree with you about a certain subject in prayer, that somehow that will make God have to obey your spell. It's utterly ridiculous, and I've heard it my entire adult Christian life. The entire context of chapter 18 is on forgiveness, for heaven's sakes. This reference to two or three agreeing is referring to the fact that when there is disunity of any kind, where any two or three will refuse the discord and come into a spirit of agreement of heart in love and care for one another, that's where Jesus' presence will be, and that is where the power in prayer will be greater but this is an important place at the same time even though we're correcting a misunderstanding in a parenthesis here it's still an important place to see that the power of more than one person entering into unified heart-focused prayer with another or with others is a viable and important principle in prayer there's a power of the presence of god released to and through such prayers. And God seeks for those who will pray this way. So obviously then, God will not need to be talked into doing exactly what he is already longing to do. He wants us engaged. That's what this is about. We may pray words that seem to sound as if we're begging God to do the thing we are asking. Like, Daniel's intercessory prayer in, in Daniel chapters 9 and 10, praying for the re restoration of, of Israel, uh, for the return of the Jews to Judea. But it's the Holy Spirit energizing that prayer. It's the Spirit of God moving through that prayer that is prompting it in order to bring about the circumstances in which blessing can come rather than the curse. This is why unity and love for each other is a part of the vital ingredient of prayer. These verses that I've been referring to in Matthew 18, they speak of God looking for just one who will pray. This is obvious, therefore, that others joining in are even better. God is your Father. He loves you individually. That is so clear in so many scriptures and in life experience, it doesn't need to be supported with proof texts. But we do need to understand that though our individual relationship with him is real and precious to him and to us, he also loves us as the bride. He relates to the whole bride corporately. 
So there are principles of spiritual reality that are only real as they relate to us in a corporate expression. This principle is first seen in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 7 and 8, where God says to Israel, you shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. That's not hyperbolic, poetic language. There's reality in it. There are elements of spiritual warfare on a large scale that I believe we are not to be engaged in by, in, by on an individual basis, but only corporately. And that's too large a subject to be dealt with here, and I've dealt with it in other platforms. Uh, and it would take us away from our main point, but I only mention it here as regards the greater degree of power that moves in corporate prayer. But for the individual believer... There's still great power that is released through our private individual prayers, even for very big issues. So I don't want to get legalistic and black and white about what an individual can and can't pray. James chapter 5 verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. In fact, I want to uh, go back to the amplified version of this verse in James uh, that we just quoted, James 5. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Uh, This is one of those verses that really needs to be unpacked to understand it. Uh, Because it flows in and out of two different kinds of prayer. Uh, It talks about the prayer of a single individual, This is where he goes on and talks about Elijah being a man of like passions as we are. In other words, he's just a normal human being with the same limitations that any human being has, the same neediness, the same weaknesses, the same character flaws, the same dependence on the grace of God, and yet he prayed and uh, controlled the weather through his prayers. But that before he talks about that individual prayer power, he uh, he talks about another aspect of prayer, which is interdependence on one another in prayer. And I want to go back in the Amplified to uh, to address this. This is all familiar territory, but we, we need to look at it. Uh, he's, let's start in verse twelve. Above all things, my brothers, do not do not swear either by heaven or earth or take an oath. But let your yes and your no mean simply yes and no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you afflicted? He should pray. Is anyone glad at heart? He should give thanks and praise to God. Is any among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will restore him. And if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven. Confess to one another, therefore, your faults. This is obviously calling us into interdependence in prayer on a higher level than just whispering to someone on the way out the door from a church meeting, uh, please pray for us this week, you know, etc., 
uh, confess your fault, your sins. By the way, the word, the text is sins. Confess your sins one to another. It's not, it's not faults. That was a, a political manipulation by King James translators. Uh, confess your sins, your faults, steps, your offenses, all, all those words to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, restored to spiritual and physical strength. The earnest, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power to be available, dynamic in its working. Now, all of those verses, all of those commentaries there in the Amplified come out of one Greek word that is translated in two English words. Uh, Energeo there, uh, where we get the word energy, is referring to both the energy of the prayer and the energy released because of the prayer. And so as a result of that, the translator expands it to, to read the earnest, continued, heartfelt prayer of a righteous person makes tremendous power to be made available. Actually, this is one of the beauties of Greek, uh, is that sometimes it has the ability to just cram so much in one small word. Other times it seems like the word is as long as a paragraph. But uh, anyway, the point is that uh, there is energy released in the prayer and energy that is set in motion because other people are joining in. I, I know this gets this gets difficult for some of us to hear because we have been made deaf to a lot of scriptures by the unbelieving, naturalistic, humanistic arrogance of Western Enlightenment thinking that has imposed itself upon theology. But the bottom line is just a great deal of our so-called orthodox theology. This is what's so bad. Some of it claims to be absolutely orthodox theology. It's full of unbelief. It's rationalistic, anti-supernatural, uh, totally rejects the spirit of the scriptures. The mystery of these spiritual realities that we've been talking about, are, are they're all but lost in many churches. This is due to the arrogant exaltation of a narrow, limited view of Scripture, as I said, that claims to be orthodox. It's rejected clear truth. But you know what? Thankfully, the demands of our present struggle are awaking people in all denominations and in no denomination from that mindset. And we are returning to these Scriptures and learning to live in them. And they are living in us. A mystery in Scripture, by the way, is, is not referring to something unknowable. When Scripture talks about mystery, it's something that is hidden, that is being revealed. When Job faced his terrible trials at the hands of Satan, he had no idea what was going on. It was all a hidden mystery to him. He, and so he attributed everything to the direct hand of God. When, uh, 
when he gets to the end of the story, there is a revelation of some of the mystery. And uh, I think Job ended up with a clear understanding that God has not ever been his problem, his abuser, and that there is another accuser and another abuser in the picture. And uh, he didn't know it. But because we can read the story, we do know it. So there's progressive revelation of the Satan who uh, goes from being this mysterious being in Genesis chapter 3 to being revealed as the accuser in in Job to being the open prince of darkness and resistance to all goodness in the Gospels. And finally, at the end of the age, is revealed in the book of Revelation as a monstrous dragon. So along with the progressive revelation of evil, there's the progressive revelation of the heart of God. And that's too large a subject to pursue here. I know we need to do it. Uh, we really need to do it. But uh, in our day, under the same spiritual warfare, we don't have to be in the dark on the level that Job was. Paul says in Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 that the mystery of iniquity is already at work. Uh, and the mystery of iniquity is being un- unraveled and unveiled and will finally be brought to an end. And now God's allowed this battle in, uh, on planet Earth where eternal issues are being settled here on earth. The doom of the enemy was completely uh, achieved at Calvary. That's a settled issue. There's no tug of war between God and the devil. Uh, It's totally accomplished, unchangeable, settled fact. Calvary destroyed uh, the power of Satan. But the outworking of that redemption throughout the whole earth and finally the whole, the whole universe is being played out in the unfolding of human history. And we, me and you, are called to participate in the enforcement of the ever-expanding kingdom of God until every place where the defeated enemy is still attempting to throw his weight around until every place under that shadow is is delivered. That means, uh, the, the, or the, the means by which that is enforced is exerted from heaven through the people of God on the earth who take their place in the heavens through prayer. This kind of praying brings heaven and earth into contact, conflict, And finally, conquest. God allows it to be demanding because it is training us to eventually replace the principalities and powers that we are actually encountering. We will one day judge them, rule them, and finally replace them. Prayer is the place that that training is occurring So the more we are engaged both individually and corporately in prayer, the better. 
Now, obviously, I'm stirring up lots of questions. I'm, I, I meant to do that, and we will pursue this more in uh, the next time that we are going to be together. But uh, I just realized, by the way, I don't think I gave you the text in Isaiah uh, that I quoted a while ago. One of my favorites, Isaiah 67, uh, 64, verse 7, uh, which says, uh, there is none who stirs up himself to take hold of you. There is none who stirs up himself to take hold of you. Maybe when you turn this machine off or get away from whatever mechanism you're using to listen to this message, it might be a good time for you to stir up yourself. Don't wait for the Holy Spirit to stir you up. Stir yourself up. Um, begin to pray about the things you have stopped praying about. Begin to take them into prayer again. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand yourself in areas where you have become really passive or even worse than passive, you have actively begun to resist letting the Lord guide you in prayer over certain str struggles. You say, well, I've prayed and prayed. I've struggled and struggled. I've asked people to pray for me. I've gotten prayer. I don't care. Keep at it. Uh, there's a whole study we could do just on how many times in different settings we are told in Scripture, press in, keep pressing in. Uh, pray and keep praying, knock and keep knocking, ask and keep asking. Uh, the effectual, fervent, continual prayer. Uh, some people teach, you know, you've heard it taught, that if you pray more than once, you're praying once in unbelief, or you're praying in unbelief. Well, there's a certain context where that may be true, but it's not true all the time. Sometimes prayer is is a, a, a warfare and sometimes that's why you need to ask other people to help you. Not because we're trying to gang up on God so God will get the message that the majority rule wants X, Y, Z to be done. But because there is something on the horizontal level that is being released in the spirit through our prayers. God set it up that way in order to make us interdependent on one another uh, as well as totally dependent on him. So in closing, let's try to sum up the, the main point that I've been trying to bring us to, and not very well, but trying the best I can. We ask others to pray for us, not because we're trying to gang up on God. That's obvious. I, that should be obvious, but it's not. So why do we ask for prayer? Well, because there is a release of power on the horizontal level for good that God intended to be released only as others join with us. Now, this brings up one more point that I'll mention before we go, and that is there's some people I would not ask to pray for me. Uh, that may sound unkind or arrogant, but I can't help it. It's just true. You know, uh, 
When Jesus went in to raise the little girl from the dead, he made everybody that was in there mourning and making the typical traditional mournful noises, he made them leave. Uh, now, I don't know that it's right to say that he made them leave because they were hindering him, but on the human level, uh, if you're going to raise somebody from the dead, you probably don't want a lot of traditional mourners bellering in your ear while it's going on. But on our, when it comes to us, I don't want people joining me in prayer who don't understand the principles of what I'm talking about, who, who would just pray, now I'll lay me down to sleep kinds of prayers, or worse, pray a uh, passive, Lord, if it be your will that good things happen, but maybe it's your will that bad things happen. So, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I think it makes a difference who you get to pray with you and what kind of understanding they have of prayer. I'm not saying for that we should micromanage people's prayer lives, whether it's for us or for anybody else. But I'm just saying what I know to be true in my own experience. And uh, so sometimes I'll ask people to pray, yes, like this last situation I just mentioned in our opening moments together. It was a very delicate and d- demanding and difficult situation that uh, needed focused prayer so that uh, the power could be released on the horizontal level that God oversees on the vertical level. Anyway, we'll have more to say about some of these things, Lord willing, in our next hour together. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. And uh, get time with God. Go back to revisit places and issues that you've let go by you that uh, have maybe gotten stuck because you have gotten stuck And if you get unstuck, it'll get unstuck in prayer. Father, please guide us in these things. Please let anything I said that was just born of my own thinking, let it fall to the ground. But let what was born of your spirit live in us and produce fruit through us and for us. In Jesus' precious holy name, thank you. Amen.